you're listening to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I'm honored to share with you conversations for the health of all things. In these special episodes, I am joined by guests on the show to explore how the osteopathic concept presents in their lives and learn about their personal and professional stories. Ranging from osteopathic physicians to those familiar with osteopathic treatment to those associated with osteopathic medicine in a variety of settings, these conversations provide new perspective on lighting the way for the path to best health. Please note that while I am a physician and may interview other physicians, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Welcome back to This Osteopathic Life and an episode of Conversations for the Health of All Things. I'm Dr. Amelia Beakey, and today I am joined by Dr. Catherine Toomer. She is a community health and family medicine physician located in South Carolina. She is also the CEO of Health, Wellness, and Weight Loss Centers, where she is a coaching counselor helping people all over the world. Thanks for joining me here today. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us your story about your journey first into the practice Mm -hmm. of medicine. Well, my journey into medicine started when I was eight years old, actually. Um, I used to sit with my dad on Sundays and I would chat with them. We just talk. And there's eight kids in our family. So, you know, trying to get our parents alone was kind of (laughs) hard. But I realized while everyone else was watching cartoons, if I, you know, sat with my dad, I could get him to myself. And Mm -hmm. most of the time, actually, really, I was talking to the back of his newspaper, but I didn't want to hear. (laughs) (laughs) So... But anyway, um, but then one day he wasn't there. Um, I was one of the younger of the eight. No one told me anything. And I he was just gone. And I didn't know why. And I could tell everyone was sad. And so finally, someone finally told me my dad was in the hospital. He had cancer. And at that point, to an eight-year-old, cancer just means death. Mm-hmm. And so I just was devastated. And, and then one day he just walked back in the house, his usual self. And I was like, wait, I didn't understand. So uh, we sat and he, we talked a lot. And so I asked him a lot of questions. He answered them. He told me that his cancer, he had colon cancer. It was caught very early by um, a family physician who actually, I think had asked my mother a question. He wasn't even there. Asked my mother a question, like, how's, how's Sam doing? And he, she said, well, he's kind of this. And she goes, well, tell him to come see me. And they caught it early. Wow. Um, and, um, and so he was fine. But he kept going on and on about how he was so appreciative of the doctors, how they were so good, and how they explained everything, how they helped him, how they saved his life, and if it hadn't been for them. And so I just thought, I'm going to be a doctor. That's it. Mm-hmm. And I just, and I never wavered. From that mm-hmm. point, um, my mother's an educator, and when I told her I was going to be a doctor, I got a miniature skeleton, mm-hmm. and each bone was represented, and it was like a puzzle that you had to put together. I mean, everything, even like down to the patella bone, you know, it was like the smallest Aww. little, you know, <laughs> yeah. So like basically for anyone who's out of medicine, I, this is the kneecap. That's how small yeah. it was. And the, the whole skeleton was only about this big. So <laughs> it took me weeks to put together, but what it did, it also told me that this was a, um, a worthy pursuit 
and that my parents took me seriously when okay. I said that's what I wanted to do. Of course, over the years afterwards, they always said, you know, you know, if you want to do something else, that's fine. But I just never wanted to do anything else. Mm-hmm. And then my family moved to Kenya when I was 10 from Michigan. And moving to a place where there are diseases that here we are vaccinated against that mm-hmm. get caught very early. Suddenly I was seeing things that were progressed, that were way into their late stages that I just you know, you just never see in the United States. And as I got older, I understood that the reason some people were that were unable to get health care and others were was simply because of money. Mm-hmm. And so I decided then that I wanted to be the type of doctor that helped people who couldn't normally afford health care. And that evolved into becoming a community health and family medicine position. And I, I even got a National Health Service Corps scholarship because the National Service Corps scholarship puts you in a place where people are underserved for the years that you get the scholarship. So I applied before I started med school. So I was one of the few rare people that had actually four years of obligation. And for me, it was a win-win because I was doing exactly what I wanted to do in the and my first job was actually in my husband's hometown okay. in South Carolina. So it was my mother-in-law was right there to help me with my my one-year-old. My, you know, I was helping the people I really wanted to help, doing the work I really wanted to do. And it was just perfect. Love that. And how has that progressed for you from that first job in the time of obligation? Did you stay in that setting that continue for mm-hmm. you when you were done with the National Health Service Corps officially? Well, what happened um, about two years in, um, now at that point, um, I had gained a significant amount of weight through college, through med school, through marriage, through residency, just stress weight, essentially. Mm-hmm. I'm about 4'11", and at that point, I was you know, hovering around 200 pounds, um, and then got pregnant again because I already had one daughter who was a year old and then I was pregnant again. And at that point I was on insulin for diabetes. And my, um, a month after my daughter was born, I went into congestive heart failure and um, from pregnancy was pregnancy related. And so from that point, I didn't practice. I had to stop practicing while I recovered. I was told at the time that I'd have a 50% chance of living five years my ejection fraction was like 15% when normal is about wow. 55, 65. And um, I knew the statistics already. I had treated it before. I had diagnosed it before. My first patient that I lost as a resident was a 17-year-old with the exact same diagnosis, mm-hmm. with, whose ejection fraction was actually, actually better than mine. Mm-hmm. So I, I was terrified. Um, and so I just focused on uh, my health. So then I took about a nine year gap. There was like a nine year and I homeschooled during that time. And I, I just did a lot of things, just focused on getting better. And then when I went back, I went back right back into working with the underserved. Ah, so tell us about that. So you're there dedicated to the health of those who can't access healthcare. And then you get all these messages from your body, right? That it's time mm-hmm. to take a pause. So how did you manage that, both, like you said, the fear of knowing what could happen, right? Having all of that knowledge mm-hmm. and finding me in a space with two young children. 
how did you navigate that time? Very difficultly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, my husband was a wonder. Um, he did a lot of, um, of the, what he just took over everything. Mm -hmm. um, but the first thing I did was I lost weight. I just, I, I couldn't focus on my heart. I mean, I couldn't do anything about my heart. My heart was going to mm -hmm. do what, what it was going to do. But I knew I could control my diabetes. I had helped other people reverse their diabetes um, and that I could lose weight. And I knew that one would help the other. If I lost weight, it would help my diabetes. If I got my diabetes under control, it would help me lose weight. And so that's what I focused on. And so I lost initially 60 pounds in about six months. Immediately, my in, I, I didn't need insulin anymore. Um, and then over the years, I've, you know, in order to keep my blood sugars under control, because once you're a diabetic, you're always a diabetic. It's just a matter of whether you're a diabetic who uses medication or a diabetic who doesn't. And so um, to keep my blood sugars under control, I had to become stricter and stricter and stricter. And now, you know, at 56, um, you know, it's, it's hard, even harder still. But in my, while keeping um, my sugars under control, I've lost an additional 20. So total of like 80 pounds just to keep my diabetes under control. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting I hear in there that you kind of became the doctor that you needed, right? In that space yes. to see like, I've walked people through this. So I'm going to walk me through this mm -hmm. now. Yeah. I actually was turned away from other places when I asked for help, mm -hmm. mainly because of my heart. No one wanted to, I mean, Peripartum cardiomyopathy is rare. Mm -hmm. And not only is it rare, many, many physicians have never seen it, but they know congestive. I was 36 years old with a heart, you know, in heart failure. They didn't know what to do with me. So they're just like, you know what, I, whatever I do, it might make it worse. So you're too high risk. So I ended up having to create my own program. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the program I use now with my clients and patients. Yeah. It's the, it's the exact same one. And so what was it like after that nine-year gap stepping back into the practice of medicine? What had changed, you know, besides you, right? You had changed so many things in yeah, your life. Yeah, I changed a lot. Um, well, I was very empathetic, when I, much more empathetic when I went back. I thought I was empathetic before, but when I went <laughs> back into medicine, I was really empathetic. Um, it was interesting. I was terrified. Mm -hmm. I was really, really scared. My husband's a radiologist. And we talk a lot about medicine, diagnoses, different things. You know, he, he, he loves the science of medicine. Mm -hmm. And so we always talk a lot about, you know, different cases that are interesting or whatever. And so when I told him I was scared about going back and that, you know, I haven't practiced in nine years, he was like, Kevin, I'm telling you, I see everyone's orders. I see er how everybody practices because, mm -hmm. you know, everyone comes there. We only have one hospital, one radiology group in our town. So he sees everybody. He said, trust me, you are good. You're fine. Don't worry about it. And I was like, well, maybe I should take a course or do something to catch up. Like, he's like, I'm telling you, you won't need it. He goes, he goes I'm just going to put it on record right now. So when you start practicing <laughs> again, I'm gonna, I want you to come back and say you were right. I just, all I'm asking <laughs> is just come back and say you were right. Oh. And sure enough, I hit the ground running. It mm -hmm. was, it was seamless. Um, it, I was back in my element and I just came alive again. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful. Yeah. 
and you brought forward that key principle, right? So when you had your heart and your weight and things you were looking at, and you chose that, which you could control, right? You could still be concerned mm-hmm. about your heart, but it wasn't directly something that you could shift. Yeah. And I wonder when you made that return, what were those elements that were also within your control, right? So what could you show up doing when, for example, mm-hmm. electronics, right? The EMR might've changed in that time and, you know, battling yes. that we could talk in a whole episode, but <sighs> what were those key areas that yeah. you did control when you made that step back in that allowed you to run? Well, um, again, like I still have congestive heart failure and I knew that stress or getting, um, if I got upset, that it would trigger problems. Mm-hmm. And so I learned very quickly that um, I needed to control my emotional reaction. And so I got very good at, um, which is interesting because my mother is very much like this also. And it's just sort of like, you know, like she's like the walking serenity prayer, you know, mm-hmm. control the things you can, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. don't worry about the things you can't and just have the wisdom to know the difference. And that's essentially what I did. I would, every single situation, I would just like, is it something I can control? Is it something I can do something about? And the other thing my mother used to always say to me, whenever, you know, someone would say or do something and I get upset, she was like, will you remember that person's name five years from now? And so that's essentially what happened. People would, you know, people, and interestingly in medicine, and this is something I don't think a lot of people know, there are people out there who intentionally try to rile their doctors. I don't know why. (laughs) Staff, Mm -hmm. patients, doesn't matter. Just like, you know what? I'm just going to get on your nerves. I'm going to try my best. And I would have patients and I'd have other people and I would just sit there and not react. And I'm just like, you're boring. (laughs) (laughs) You you don't react to anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I I do react to some things, but I react to the important things, not the things Mm -hmm. that aren't important. Mm -hmm. And so I got very, very good at picking my battles. Very good at picking my battles. And that's still now because I have to reserve them for the things that are, you know, reserve that fight for the things that are important. And I had two children that, you know, were going into their teen years. I had homeschooled them. We're going back into school for the first time in a while. And so I had a lot of other things to focus on that had, you know, that I didn't, um, I didn't worry a lot about the things I couldn't touch or couldn't change. I love that. Choosing your response and, your priorities, all of that. And it can seem like small things, but it's really are the major factors. I love that. So you mentioned forming the program that you now use in your work with people in your practice. And it sounds like far beyond the local reach as well. What are yeah. some of those key elements? And maybe how did you come to them, right? I'm sure maybe by a lot of trial and learn. That's my yeah, <laughs> favorite I way did. to phrase that. Yeah. Well, because, you know, I was diabetic. So I checked my blood sugars all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hyper vigilant during my pregnancy, but then I just kind of maintained that afterwards. So I would eat something and then check my blood sugar an hour later and document. I would just document everything. If something, if it went up, I would, I knew exactly what I'd eaten, how much of it I'd eaten and everything. So I went through and I started noticing now this is long before ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. I started noticing that the more protein I ate, the lower my blood sugars were. And, but I also, so I started cutting, I mean, increasing my protein. So I thought, well, I'll also cut down my carbs. So I started cutting back on my carbohydrates, but I said, wait, this is making me weak. So I went back up on my carbs and my blood sugars followed. But then I realized if I did the exact, if I just added more protein to that carb, no matter what it was, 
my blood sugar stabilized again. And so I was like, I, you know, I think I'm onto something. <laughs> so I realized, and so I realized I could eat whatever I wanted as long as there was enough protein to go with it. Mm-hmm. And so um, that essentially became the cornerstone of my program because so many people, when you tell them, you know, you need to eat better, you need to do all this stuff, they're like, what does that mean? And so what I would started doing was telling you, bring me your food diet, just write everything down. I don't care what donuts, milkshakes, I don't care. Just mm-hmm. write it down. And I'm going to show you how you can have those things and it not cause you a problem. And that's essentially what I do. Because I've had <laughs> my, my first patient, actually, when I opened my office, I opened what I found in, in when I was working uh, in, in a clinic that wasn't mine. I didn't have enough time to spend with people mm-hmm. to really dive into why their issue, you know, what their issues were and how I could change. So I opened a micro practice. And my very first patient, I'll never forget him, said, um, and he, he, I got his permission to tell this story. <laughs> he said, he walked in, he was actually someone who had had um, gastric bypass, lost a significant amount of weight, and then gained all that weight back, which happens quite often. And mainly it's because they lose the weight, but the reasons they were overweight in the first place have not been addressed. So he came in, diabetic wanting to lose weight. And he's like, but I love ice cream and I'm not giving it up. And I was like, so basically you're asking me to work a miracle here. <laughs> like, what am I supposed <laughs> to do? So I thought about it and I was like, how can you turn protein? How could you make, take ice cream and make a high protein something out of it? Mm-hmm. And I came with milkshake. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if you take I was like, if, is it the cold? Is it the sweet? What is it about ice cream that he likes so much? And so um, he wouldn't go to the sugar-free one. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, fine. If you're not going to go to the sugar-free, go with the highest fat content. Yeah. And mix it with protein powder. Mix it with a little bit of heavy cream. And make your protein a high-fat, high-protein milkshake. Mm-hmm. And his blood sugar stopped going up. By the time he was done with me, because I really stay with people, people usually go fly away afterwards, but he had lost 189 pounds and his blood sugar, he was off three of his five medications for diabetes. His others had been dropped and um, he had really significant knee and ankle issues that had stopped. And... um, and I'll never forget. He just said, this is the first time I have, he goes, I've not been this way since I was my son. And he was in his sixties at that time. And, um, and that just, you know, it just, those type of things. And it's happened over and over again. And I just, it just drive. Yeah. And he still got to have his milkshakes. He still got to have his milkshakes. Yeah. Although interestingly, as his blood sugars got more controlled, his sweet tooth. Mm-hmm. In a way. Maybe less frequently. Huh? Exactly. Yeah, I love that. And so it sounds like there are cornerstone components, but customization in what you do, because yes. as we know, there is no one right and perfect way, right? Because otherwise we would have had it yeah. and labeled it, <laughs> sold exactly. it effectively, right? And so how do you balance that, right? So here are some key principles. And I think about that for structure and function, right? Here are some things we know okay. to be true for the majority of people. And then here's the way mm-hmm. that we make it work for you where you are like this person. I'll meet you here and we'll yeah. see. As we walk through, it might even evolve. Yeah. And a lot of times, like I've often say, weight is a symptom. 
And so I always look for the cause. I, 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 I mean, weight's nice and you can measure it and you step on a scale and you know it's coming down. But what's causing the weight gain and then what works to create weight loss is go- focusing on the why. And the why is rarely because of food. It's rarely because of fitness. It's often because of emotion. And that's so, which is why I do a lot of counseling. If it's out of my, you know, if, if it's something that's a little more complicated, then I, you know, first refer. But um, I can count on one hand the number of times I've actually uh, prescribed a weight loss medication. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is that most weight loss medications are to suppress appetite. Most people who are overweight don't have large appetite. So that medication doesn't work. And if it does, it doesn't work for very long. And so unless someone is a true binge eater, none of those medications work. And so, but I have treated a lot of diabetes that went undiagnosed. I've I've, uh, discovered a lot of insulin resistance. And I've discovered a lot of depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And those tend to be the reasons that most people, it affects their eating habits. And so therefore it affects also what their body does with food when they've eaten it. And so once you focus on the cause and you get that taken care of, the weight just falls off. Oh, I love that. And I'm so curious, you brought up counselor and you also have coaching in your practice and you're a physician. In some way of those, we see some relationships and overlays and overlaps, but what do you see as the unique distinctions in each of those roles and how bringing them together is so powerful? Well, as a physician, um, I'm a problem solver. I see a puzzle and I want to put it together. So as a family physician, what I do is I look at all the different symptoms and then I look for the diagnosis that makes all those symptoms make sense. Mm -hmm. And And so that is what I do with medicine. As far as coaching is concerned, I take the time that I have, and usually it's about an hour. um, And I just basically go through and find out how people can implement what it is they need to and what are the barriers to that implementation. And then I just work through that. As far as the counseling, when I, once I've discovered the barriers, I start asking why, why are those barriers there? And then we start working on those. And so it, it, it t- it's a different, and, and I blend them all together. So it's not just like one appointment for medicine, one appointment right. for this, but mm-hmm. just in the process. Um, and so often what happens is, um, another example, I had someone who came in, she was like, I, I know my eating and everything is because of anxiety. And as I started talking, I was like, I don't think you have anxiety. Something doesn't. Right. Because all the anti-anxiety medications, none of them work. And I said, but they're like kind of like alcohol. You take them, you're going to get drunk. I mean, it's like, it, it, it works on everybody, you know, um, unless you have some, you know, uh, opposite reaction, which isn't usually the case. And so um, when she started telling me more and more of her symptoms, I realized she had reflux. And it was heart. It was just reflux that was making her feel like she was having palpitations. And she thought she had anxiety. Once we got her, once we got her reflux under control, she stopped worrying because now she, she wasn't worried about having panic attacks because she was, she knew she had anxiety. She thought she had anxiety and was worried about having panic attacks. That worry was 
making her body go into a stress reaction. And therefore what she ate changed. Um, mm-hmm. What her body did with food changed because of that stress. And so once that happened, she was like, she was fine. And her weight started dropping. Yeah. And how and powerful I, to be able to bring those together and say, yes, something yeah. is happening here for someone. Yeah. Right? Cause they can feel like yeah. it is all in our heads. And of course not discounting mental health and diagnoses, but to be able to say, yeah. no, actually, right. There is something going on here. Yeah. And yeah. I hear that a lot. I always tell my patients that something isn't right for me is a real symptom. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's a legitimate symptom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, I, you don't have to tell me exactly what hurts. You don't have to tell me, you know, exactly what it is if you don't know. But one of the things I learned in medical school, if you ask a patient, what do they think is wrong? Nine times out of 10, they'll be right. I love it. Yeah, giving them the space to do that. So you mentioned the hour for working with you to the start and how often and how long are the appointments that you have? I'm sure many are curious as to what -hmm. amount of time they get to have with a physician who also is coach and counselor for them. Well, it depends on what they choose. I actually started a group program because I found that one-on-one, the community health part of me wasn't being fed. So (laughs) I created a group process, but what it is, it's a whole year because what I do is I help people lose the weight and then continue the support. It's, it's, it's important that that support continues, that you still have access to the resources that got you there. And so um, I have that, um, which starts in January, and enrollment's actually happening now until December 31st. And that is um, my program, my plan, plus access to me live once a month, then Q&As as needed, and then other people are going to come in, experts in different things. And mainly the experts are coming in to address the why people gain weight in the first place. Are they not sleeping well? Are they not, you know, managing stress very well? Are they, you know, are um, their relationship having issues? You know, those type of things. So those things have to be addressed and it will be addressed along the year. Then on the other end of that, I have one-on-one intensive counseling, which is an hour a week. And usually about 12 weeks, it can get someone to the point where they really don't need me anymore. And then they can just come in, talk to me anytime they feel like it, or they contact me online. And then I have a hybrid. So people have the group and then they can have a one-on-one with me once a month so that I can kind of help them stay on track. So there's, you know, there's different options. um, But the only, the only difference is that if someone's in South Carolina, where I am, I can prescribe. If they're not in South Carolina, then I, what I do is I make the recommendations for them to take to their doctors. But I can't, I still order labs and stuff no matter where, where anybody is. But, um, you know, usually the, when it comes to medication recommendations, you know. And so I talk to a lot of doctors also of my clients um, because, and they appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, I don't, I think, I don't know if this is still the case because I don't bill through insurance. But there was a time when reimbursement for doctors was tied to patients' numbers. Mm-hmm. So if they're an out of control diabetic, yeah. the doctor who was taking care of that patient got paid less. Mm-hmm. So what was happening, these patients were coming to me, I was getting their diabetes under control. They're going back to their doctors. And they're like, whoa. Yeah. So they love them gold stars. So yeah. <laughs> so I was getting people referred. I get still get, I still get orthopedic, ortho, mm-hmm. um, orthopedic surgeons. If they need to do a knee surgery or hip surgery on someone, they just like, you know, there's no point until they get some of their weight off. 
they'll send them to me and then mm-hmm. I work with them and then yeah. they go for their surgery. I love those connection opportunities, both in the group. So bringing people together who are sharing a common experience to support each other. And then for you with physician colleagues, I found that as well, being that liaison, that advisor, that advocate that can say, hey, these are the questions to ask because you aren't going to have an hour right, with your mm-hmm. physician in the primary care office can benefit everyone in that space. I love that. Well, so many great opportunities and how fantastic that, like we talked about earlier, the pandemic has offered global reach, right, of what was formerly limited to a geographic location. And there's been so many ways, but I'm curious if you could sum it up, how you would say you see yourself for the health of all things. I see myself as someone about either creating either myself or creating a space where if someone is overwhelmed, they have a soft place to land. Mm-hmm. And that's to me, that is what medicine is. It's to take someone who is frightened, overwhelmed, and you make them feel well. And so that's what I see myself as. Love that. And it leaves so much room for, doesn't matter the diagnosis, or the person or the demographic. It's just having that space. What a gift. Well, thank you so much for all that you're doing. And you mentioned your program is launching now. So please do tell everyone where they can find you if they'd like to learn more, potentially join in this upcoming New Year adventure. Well, um, my website is drtumor.com. That's D-R-T-O-O-M-E-R.com. And I'm also on Facebook, uh, C. Harmon Tumor. MD. Actually, if you put in Katherine Harmon Tumor mm-hmm. in Google, I'm the only one. So you find it. all my You're top of the stuff. SEO there. <laughs> That's a good so, way to go. Yeah. yeah. So just um, yeah, on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, um, mm-hmm. on Twitter. I don't act, I'm not as active on Twitter with um, getting information out because I'm very verbose and they don't give you much. You know, right? Limits <laughs> on characters. Who needs that? <laughs> I know. So I'm on LinkedIn as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm much to my daughter's, uh, this may, I am going to start on TikTok, mm-hmm. but, um, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you so much for all that you're doing and look forward to having these centers reach people all across the globe. I hope you enjoyed this episode of this osteopathic life conversations for the health of all things. Please take a moment to like rate and review the podcast And if you would like to be featured as a guest or know someone you'd like to nominate as a guest for an episode, please let me know at thisosteopathiclife at gmail.com. Visit the website at thisosteopathiclife.com or visit me on Instagram and Facebook at This Osteopathic Life. Thank you so much for listening.